Good morning and welcome to Fuzzy Logic here on a Sunday. My name's Broderick and it's a pleasure to have you with us. We kicked off today with that fantastic musical number from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So long and thanks for all the fish. And uh, we are getting a bit fishy today um, as we're going to be chatting about uh, the marine environment and we've got a few scientists joining us who are all speaking at the... uh, Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery Centre's Marine Science Forum coming up next weekend. And uh, from the Marine Discovery Centre down the Sapphire Coast, we've got Jill joining us this morning. Good morning, Jill. Good morning, Broderick. Thanks for coming along. I'm really excited to be uh, delving into the ocean this morning with you. It's going to be some good fun. And uh, joining us as well as Jill, we've got um, scientists with us, uh, Dr Chris Fulton. Joining us from the Australian National University. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. How are you going? Good, mate. Good. Fantastic to have you here. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, And look, we are going to get into the marine science in just a moment, but I think we should keep things the way they normally are and uh, start off by talking about this day in science, as we do. and what happened on this day? Well, back in 1858 was the birth of Rudolf Christian Karl Diesel, a German engineer who invented, of course, the diesel engine. Um, studied the four-stroke internal combustion engines developed by Nikolaus Otto, um, and uh, Diesel conceived of an engine that would approach the thermodynamic limit uh, if the fuel in the cylinder could be expanded at constant pressure. It could get close to this limit. Um, And he did a pretty good job, although received a lot of um, flack for his invention, but obviously now we're running the diesel engine quite efficiently and quite well. Um, Also on this day in 1965, we had the first spacewalk, uh, the Voskhod Voskhod? V-O-S-K-H-O-D. Voskhod. Say it with Sounds right. Yeah, that's my best Russian accent. Uh, the Voskhod 2 was launched into space carrying Alexei Leonov, Pavel <laughs> Belyaev, uh, aboard. And uh, on the second orbit, Leonov left the spacecraft through the airlock while still tethered and went for a walk outside for about 10 minutes which would have been good fun, I reckon. Yeah, I was glad you said while still tethered. I was worried for a moment. Just went for outside yeah, for just a walk. <laughs> I'm going outside for a walk. Just got uh, sick maybe of, sometime. Just got sick of the other people and think, I'm gone. God, yeah, that's right. I mean, it'd be interesting, certainly. <laughs> Until the oxygen runs out, of course. Um, also on this day in 1987, uh, the discovery of high-temperature superconductivity was announced to thousands of scientists at a PAC meeting of the American Physical Society in New York City. Now, this phenomenon of uh, high-temperature superconductivity occurs at four degrees. That's four degrees above absolute zero, which in terms of Celsius is minus 269 degrees. So still quite cold, but relatively high temperature Um, and I love the fact that this uh, when it was um, described at the meeting of the American Physical Society uh, the sense of excitement was dubbed the Woodstock of Physics what a fantastic description (laughs) and look I think that segues beautifully into what's going to be the Woodstock of Marine Biology (laughs) coming up down in Eden and uh, look, it's going to be a fantastic weekend. There's some fantastic stuff lined up, and we might get you to talk a bit later about that to us, Jill. Um, it's but probably going to be less groupies than Woodstock. I'm having less, gro- <laughs> but a few gropers. Probably. Yeah. If you go to the right diving sites, then yeah. yes. Oh, there we go. Um, <laughs> but maybe uh, you can introduce Chris to us and uh, start talking about some of his research. All right. Well, Chris is going to be speaking at the Marine Science Forum. So we're going to have a talk to Chris about some of the things he's going to be talking about down there. But my first question is that you work at the Australian National University and you tend to study coral reefs. So 
how do you study coral reefs from Canberra, which is, you know, kind of not near the ocean? It's a good question. It's one I've had a fair few times <laughs> in the five years that I've been here. The answer is that I started work on coral reefs and I like working on them because they're places that you can actually dive on and observe them directly. And when I even when I lived in Townsville and worked from there, I tended to fly to a lot of the locations that I worked from, like in the northern Great Barrier Reef or Ningaloo and WA. Oh, wow. So it's no, no real difference for me now, just a couple of extra hours on a plane. Oh, okay. So you still fly out and yeah, visit right. all sorts of places. Yep. Which one's your favourite place to visit? Uh, I would have to say uh, Ningaloo Reef in Western Australia is probably my favourite. It's uh, probably become, in my mind, the essence of Australia, where the reef meets the desert. Mm. Have you seen the whale sharks? I have, yes. Have you dived with them? Yeah, we yeah. did. We had a lucky chance one day of coming across one whale shark while we were moving from one site to another, and we got to jump in and snorkel with it. It was oh, amazing. Geez. It's kind of interesting how like rubbery they are, because you see the footage of them from a distance, you think they look like they're quite firm and rigid like a shark. But yeah. when they swim along and they're feeding, they actually sort of bellow and billow, and they look a bit like a lumpy sleeping bag. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's kind of cool. And there was one down the south coast the other week, apparently. Really? From, they spotted a whale shark from Tarthra Wharf. Oh, my goodness. So they're not common on the east coast, no. but they've been seen off Montague Island a few times. Yeah, right. Very so. frosty. Mm, Cold yeah. fins. <laughs> <laughs> now, it might seem obvious, but, I mean, what first got you interested in marine science? Why, why did you make the dive? Why I got interested in... That's a good question. I actually grew up amongst a bunch of farmers in the Hunter okay. Valley. Yeah. And decided farming really wasn't for me. Um, I started fishing with my dad from an early age and started to get really interested in what makes fish tick. And so as soon as I was old enough, I was about 14, I started diving and that was it. I was hooked. Yep. I just loved watching these things, moving around, interacting with each other. And so from then on, I decided I really wanted to do this, if I could, as a job and get paid for it, which I do. which kind of still <laughs> amazes me. It seems to have found the perfect work. So at the forum, you're going to be talking a little bit about marine protected areas, well, predominantly about marine protected areas. Um, for you know, everyone around, what is exactly a marine protected area? Like what defines a marine protected area? It's a great question. There's a, lots of different terms we use for them. They can be called marine reserves and in some cases marine parks. And the proper term we try and use now is marine protected area. We're trying to distinguish it from something like SeaWorld, for instance, which could easily be called a marine park, because a marine protected area is somewhere in the wild that we've decided to manage. We've decided to control human activities in that area in order to do a couple of things. Um, one is biodiversity conservation, and the other one is to manage fisheries in the area. Okay, so how many have we got? How many marine protected areas do we have in Australia? We've got many. There's depends on how you classify them. In New South Wales, for instance, there's six. Uh, large marine protected areas that we have. Around the Commonwealth that's currently under review, we have several very large ones, the largest being the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park in Queensland. Yeah. And in the last decade, we've seen a rapid increase in the number of marine parks throughout Australia. And at the moment, we're currently looking at some offshore marine parks being uh, developed in southeast and northwest Australia. Okay, so they're in all sorts of areas and all over. So you're going to be talking about mostly about you know whether they work. There's a lot of you know people discussing whether a marine pr protected area is actually beneficial. So how do you decide that? Like what have you been looking at in terms of deciding if a marine is it beneficial and what sort of data do you look at? So that's a really good question because 
There's been lots of different studies on marine protected areas around the world, and some have come up with the conclusion that not much has changed, and others have come up with a very strong conclusion that they have huge benefits for fish and for people. And I think the important thing is you need to compare them properly over space and time. There's lots of different factors that will make a fish population go up and down in abundance that have absolutely nothing to do with fishing and in some cases have everything to do with fishing. And you need to make those or take those into account when you're studying protected areas. Um, and the best way to do that is through a, a structured design called a backy, which means before, after, control, impact. And what you're trying to do is get data on the numbers of fish, their size, their maturity, and so on, inside and outside an area that you think you'll set up as a marine park, and then follow that through time. And then you know if there's going to be uh, benefits of the marine protected area that those are being uh, produced over that time series. So what you expect to see if a marine protected area is doing its job is that fish abundance and fish size and also the number of mature fish will increase inside the protected area where we've decided to reduce fishing relative to areas just nearby that still have fishing going on. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So when you're deciding, um, do you look at all the the complete biodiversity or do you choose a few species of fish to... Um, focus on to look at those results? You, you often find that it's complex to try and assess everything that's going yeah. on in the marine environment. There can be many thousands of species. Yeah. What people typically tend to do, and, and it's a good place to start, is they look at target species, so species that we normally harvest for fishing. So it can be anything from abalone up to things like snapper, for instance. And you can look at the abundance of those fished groups. I have tried to look at groups other than that as well because I'm interested in why marine uh, environments change from, say, a coral-dominated environment to an algae-dominated one where you suddenly have a shift from uh, something that looks like a coral reef because it's covered in corals to suddenly, and suddenly being a couple of years, something that's now looking like an algal reef. The corals have gone and they've been replaced by algae. And why does that happen? And so you need to look at things other than just the fish that are being fished to understand why that can happen. So is it about um, looking after species that are near extinction too, or is it more about the, the common fish that, that, that do get fished out um, for, for eating and for other commercial reasons? You, you can look at the endangered species. That's often a main driver. Mm. Governments are interested in protecting species from extinction. As a practical marine ecologist, I would argue that's not always the best idea. Yeah. Um, talking about that example again of a coral reef suddenly changing into an algal reef, we've found that you need to protect the, the, the jobs that a fish does for a reef, for instance. So in that example, we have fish that are herbivores that eat algae. And if you take those herbivores away from a reef, then you make it vulnerable to changing from a coral reef into an algal reef. So the fact that they're species A, species B or D or whatever is irrelevant. And whether they're common or, or not common has something to do with it. But it's their job that they do on the reef, that is, in the eating the algae in this case, that's important, and that's what we need to protect. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So who decides where to put in the MPAs? Is it a state government, federal government, like who looks at them and assesses what area and who decides whether it's important enough, like what, you know, defines an area to be important enough to be protected? Okay, so that's that's a complex question. It depends on <laughs> it depends on where you're wanting to set up the marine protected area. If we're talking about within three nautical miles of the coast, then it's the state government that decides where they'll put it. Okay. 
And so in the case of, let's take New South Wales to narrow it down, if it's New South Wales and they're looking at trying to put in a marine protected area on the coastline around, say, Batemans Bay like they did, then the state government will assess using their own government uh, representatives, scientists and other scientists from universities to uh, work out where on that coastline they should place it to get maximum benefit. And there's lots of arguments about maximum benefit. Um, basically, what they're trying to do is get a representation of different types of habitat, different types of species, so that if they close an area, it's the area best maximising all of those goals to protect all those different habitats and all those different species. And that's a great idea. In theory, it's very difficult in practice because we know very little about most of the coastline, including in Australia. Um, an example I love to use in my first-year class is that we've mapped the entire surface of the Moon and Mars down to a resolution, I think, of several millimetres in the case of Mars. We have wonderful photographic uh, 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 surveys of all these places. If you think about the world's oceans, they cover roughly 70% of the Earth's surface, um, and in terms of what we've surveyed of it, it's less than 1%. We know oh. about l less than 1%. And if you think about stuff we've actually looked at directly with the human eye, it's less than 0.001%. Wow. So there's a real information problem when you try and set up a marine park. And so you need, to, you need to be very careful about how you do these things. You need to use targeted research. I would argue that there's not been enough targeted research done during the planning process. But also understand that for practical reasons, you do need to start setting things up now because we're getting to the point where things are changing, things are getting overfished, um, certain parts of the coastline are getting overdeveloped, and we need to think about where we need to protect to avoid total collapse of some of these ecosystems. Is there anything like, not, I, I say non-scientists, but I also work on the fact that everyone can be a scientist yeah. if they want to, and, and I mean that's a point here, is there anything that people who live on the coast can do, can look out for, um, to help identify these areas in need? Most definitely. Of all the research we've seen, of all the reviews we've seen on marine protected areas over the past few decades, the one theme that comes out again and again is that MPAs work best when there's strong community involvement. So there's a couple of ways you can run an MPA. One is called top-down, where you have a centralised government who decides all the things that are going to happen in that marine protected area. They enforce it, they maintain it, and so on. I would argue that's probably the worst model. A much better model is known as the bottom-up model, where you have strong community involvement. And it's not only in the early phases of planning, but also in implementation and maintenance, where you involve the community directly in how that MPA works and is protected. Because... Ultimately, what we're trying to do here with a marine protected area is change human behavior. We're trying to change the way people will interact with their marine environment to learn to value different aspects of the marine environment. Yes, it's great to have a job. It's great to take fish from it. And we should continue to do so. Don't get me wrong. We definitely should. And there's definitely a place for that within marine protected areas. But there's a whole range of other things we can value about the environment too. There's uh, lots of different cultural, social, and economic reasons why you have an MPA. And so we're changing human behaviour, and the best way to do that is to convince the community and involve the community in MPA management. So a couple of examples I know of, uh, on the Great Barrier Reef, for instance, we've been doing research over the past few years in the Keppels and the Whitsundays, and we've involved local recreational fishermen in the research, actually helping us catch and survey fish inside no-take areas and outside no-take areas. And that's a double whammy for us because they help us do our work and they also see for themselves directly where 
things are happening on the reef and see for themselves these massive trophy-sized fish that are living inside no-take areas. It is true. There are bigger and lots more fish inside a no-take area. They've seen it for themselves. And the other example we see is the local management advisory committees, which, again, we have on the Great Barrier Reef. These are members of the community. They, they cover a, a wide spectrum of people across many different occupations and, and reasons, and they meet regularly come to the management authority, in this case Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, and say this is what we think needs to be done or this is working well and that's not working so well. And it's interactive and they feel like they have a say and a role in how the MPA works. And with those I mean, benefits of the, the trophy fish sitting in the protected areas, is there any movement of the, the MPAs? So, you know, they, they start in one place and move to the other so people can, can fish in some areas and, and reap the benefits of that? Yes, definitely. Yeah. So that's called spillover. Yeah. And spillover occurs as adults, like you're suggesting there, and we've, we've got a few uh, papers uh, over the last few decades, actually, that have shown exactly that. For instance, coal trout do live inside marine protected areas and travel outside them, and yep. there is potential for you to catch them. And the other way that you can get spillover is from the larvae. So you have big, fat, healthy parents living in a no-take area. They, in many cases, will produce little baby fish that go up into the water column and drift and disperse. And that we've now realised that when they return, some of them do return back to the same place where they were spawned, if you like, the, the, the no-take area. But just as many go to outside the no-take areas, into fished areas. And so they're replenishing the stocks in the fished areas. So this, if you like, this little nursery, the no-take nursery, is like a supply chain for the fished areas. And it works very well, as far as we can tell. Big, fat, healthy parents make big, fat, healthy babies? Yeah, they do, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's probably another conversation altogether, but they do. In fish, <laughs> yes, they do. So um, we're sort of talking about you look at them over... a certain amount of time and that sort of thing. So how long would a marine protected area need to be in place for people to actually see benefits um, for the, you know, the local fishermen that are like, all right, well, you've taken away my fishing area or, you know, they feel like it's been taken away. How long until they'll get the spillover or you can notice that there's actually been a beneficial change? Yep, great question. Definitely one that most people want to ask. And, and it depends. Not to wiggle out of it, and certainly not. I hope I'll answer your question in a second. It depends. The first thing we need to think about is whether that truly is a marine protected area. Is there okay. enforcement and is there what they call compliance? But I, I much prefer the word cooperation, <laughs> where, where people are deciding to voluntarily say, yes, that has been set aside as a no-take, no-fish area. I believe in that area. I think that's a great idea. And they truly don't fish there. If that's the case, then you can see the benefits in almost a few years. Okay. There was a paper that came out from Gary Russ and colleagues at James Cook uh, a couple of years ago now in current biology that showed that in the rezoning of the Great Barrier Reef, which was done in 2009, they saw a almost uh, immediate change in the abundance of coral trout inside and outside no-take areas that had just been set up within that last couple of years. And on the flip side, the benefits can keep on coming for many decades. There's been work being done in the Philippines by, again, Gary Russ, who's a leader of, of this particular field of research. He's been looking in those places for several decades now, and he's seen that even after 20 or 30 years, the abundance and the biomass of fish in no-takes areas is still rapidly increasing. He hasn't hit a plateau. Yeah. So theoretically, that could, those benefits could keep on increasing over that 30, 40 years. 
um, for spillover. Yeah. And that's something hopefully he'll be able to nail down in the next few years. He's starting to move to that area now. Yeah, so people can know that in their areas, if they've got a new marine park, that that's yeah. going to yeah. keep affecting them and they'll yeah. get a lot more. And so that actually has been documented. Spillover has been documented. I know it sounds like a myth and a lot of people think it's a myth, <laughs> but in the Philippine example, we've seen that fish abundance just outside marine protected areas in the Philippines is higher. And we've seen it on the Great Barrier Reef as well. Well, it makes sense. The fish don't know exactly where the marine protected area boundary is, so they are likely to swim outside it. It's not like there's a fence or anything for them exactly. <laughs> to stop them. So, exactly. you know, it's kind of common sense that there's going to be spillover. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so have you seen increases in not just species, you know, in sizes, but in biodiversity as well? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, the Philippine example that I mentioned, uh, Fiji, Great Barrier Reef, all around the world we've seen biodiversity does tend to increase or be higher inside the protected areas, particularly the no-take areas or no-access areas. And that covers a whole range of species. It can go from the, the organisms living on the seafloor, the corals and many other things that are there in case of a coral reef, all the way up to the top predators, including things like sharks. We've seen that reef sharks in areas where we do not allow any access on the Great Barrier Reef, they're called pink reefs, um, have much higher abundance, an order of magnitude higher abundance on those reefs than in places that are fished or accessed. So we're protecting a wide spectrum of the communities when we do set up these no-take areas because essentially we're leaving them alone to sort themselves out, if you, if you like. We're not disturbing them uh, for any other reasons other than natural purposes and they just sort themselves out and we find a natural balance of, in most cases, high diversity inside no-take areas. All right, well, that sounds absolutely fantastic and I'm just wondering how we can, we can increase these marine protected areas and get more, more happening uh, within the cogs of government, get them turning. I mean, turning government is never an easy thing anyway <laughs> and getting those sorts yeah. of policies. Um, what can we do to help? I think there needs to be more active uh, voices out there about taking part in marine protected areas. I think that there's, there's recently been a scientific audit of, of marine protected areas in New South Wales, for instance, just sort of talking about the local area. Um, that was open for submissions from the public, and I think more people need to submit and not think that it's a waste of time, actually take it as a valued opportunity to participate. So, I sorry, th- when you say scientific audit, that's just working out what research is, is already being done on the coast? No, it's actually taking a science-based uh, uh, approach to assessing are the marine protected areas working is okay. the processes that we're using to set them up manage them and review them working and what needs to be done more and and one of the key conclusions from that report that came out last month was that we're not doing enough social economic science we're not doing enough consultation to find out what we're doing with mpas and are they working both from a, a fish point of view but equally importantly from a social point of view is it giving us benefits is it making our lives better Fantastic. Well, hopefully we can, with the science audit, we can get some more people looking at it and thinking about it and, yeah. and the research in there yeah. to get it happening. And hopefully government will take notice. Yeah, that would be lovely. <laughs> well, if they could you know, sort themselves out then. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks very much for coming in, Chris, and uh, having a chat to us about marine protected areas. And uh, if you do want to hear more, uh, you're going to be talking about this sort of stuff down the forum, aren't you? Correct. Next Sunday. Next Sunday. Well, if you are keen, head down there. We'll let you know the details a bit later on. Um, but for now, thanks again, Chris. It's been right. great. You're very welcome.
And you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM here in Canberra. The time's 12.05. And uh, we've got another guest now from the Marine Science Forum 2012. Uh, Dr Lisa Kirkendale is joining us. Uh, welcome along, Lisa. Hi. Fantastic to have you here. Um, now, your research is uh, looking at population genetics. Now, to start off, look, let's just define that term, population genetics. What are we talking about? So population genetics, it deals with the frequency and distribution of alleles and genes, genes being um, DNA, our hereditary material, kind of the magic stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and it deals with how four key evolutionary forces, mutation, genetic drift, natural selection, and gene flow can kind of alter that frequency and distribution. And the best way to think about it is actually to just imagine a bag of jelly beans. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, a number of different colors. So the different colors would be your alleles. Okay, yep, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And then you kind of can remove some, and, and that would be extinction or kind of some of the effects of drift. You could add some, and that would be immigration and, and gene flow to some extent. And then some uh, predator might like yellow, and that, that could be an example of natural selection. Okay. And then if green were to replace kind of blue, that would that would be like a mutation. Yeah, and that's that's all. All those jelly beans are in one animal. That's right. All in one bag. Yeah. Kind of population. <laughs> okay. Population. Well, actually, in the population. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, so one, yeah. So we're looking at one species within, um, you know, sort of population of them. So you're looking at, um, with your talk down at the Marine Science Forum, you're looking at genetic changes, but um, in connectivity. So I was wondering, what is connectivity, and how does it relate to population genetics? That's a really good question, and um, uh, it's it's basically gene flow. So it's one of those four key forces that I just mentioned. Um, the movement of genes or alleles between populations of the species, and it's often used synonymously with connectivity. And you can imagine, um, if you think about two ends of the spectrum, more gene flow is going to lead to uh, a species being better connected. Those populations are just going to be more similar, kind of drive similarity. Yeah. And where, where you have less gene flow, you're going to have uh, less connectivity, poor connectivity. And in those cases, um, it can lead to speciation. So you're actually going to, a new species may evolve um, from, a, from a kind of a differentiated population. So if two populations, um, you know, get enough genetic differentiation, they're going to become two separate species. That's right. That's exactly right. And uh, and the way you can also think of connectivity, because uh, there's there's many different scientists studying kind of different levels of these linkages. But you can look at you know the ocean is a gigantic conveyor belt, and it uh, well, yeah, the ocean is essentially full of currents that are kind of uh, conveyor belts, and they're yeah. connecting kind of all of these sub basins. And they bring, like, cold water, you know, oxygen-rich water from the deep um, to the sunlit surface. They're linking kind of the polar Antarctic with uh, the tropical Arafura Sea. Yeah. And uh, connectivity also marries kind of the high seas with the nearshore coastal waters. And so you can you can look at connectivity at a lot of different levels, and that's really what kind of the marine form is going to do. Okay, so what level are you going to be looking at? Are you going to be looking at more of a global scale? Or? I'm, at the, I'm at the very nerdy lowest level. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you can have legislators 
um, looking at kind of protection of the different basins. You can have oceanographers studying the currents themselves. You could have a biologist studying a single species, looking at kind of whale migration in, in gray whales or humpback whales along the coast. And then I'm at that very bottom where I'm actually looking at that um, that conveyor belt as like a stream of DNA, as kind of the, the gene flow um, moving kind of the hereditary material kind of along currents in between oceans. Okay. So... I mean, your talk's actually titled What Have Population Genetic Data Done for Marine Conservation? So, Yeah, yeah I'm kind of interested in, in linking genetics with connectivity and then, you know, looking at what it's doing for conservation. So how will understanding, you know, the population genetics of a species actually aid in the conservation? There are many answers to that question. <laughs> is that Gillian? Is yes, that this is Gillian. That I'm speaking with? Hi. Um... <laughs> But the three, oh, I'm just getting a little bit of feedback. Um, but the three that I'll be uh, focusing on is kind of case examples from South Coast studies at my talk in Eden is really um, the identification of potentially introduced species. That can be done through a study of population genetics. You can also use population genetics to kind of monitor genetic diversity in endangered species and commercially important species with the thought there being uh, well appreciated um, by, by kind of everyone that genetic diversity is a good thing. You want, you want high levels of genetic diversity. Um, it equates to a kind of a healthy population. And um, it, it's a term that people often use now is kind of genetic resilience. So kind of for global change, things like climate change, you want to have a good repertoire of variation in order to kind of counter um, anything that will come up in the future. And you mentioned predators in, uh, sorry, not predators, introduced species uh, yeah. in there too. Do they actually change the, the, the genetics of a population? Um, well, there's, yeah, oh, sorry. No, 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 please continue. Yeah, so um, an introduced species can have a certain signature um, as far as uh, a genetic diversity goes. Um, and that's one of the studies that our lab is actually working on right now. We've been studying seaweed or green algae along the south coast um, of New South Wales. Uh, predominantly, and we found um, kind of very little genetic diversity with the molecular marker we've been using over wide geographic scales because we've been doing a comparative study with some colleagues in Canada, so we've had access to a database that includes um, populations from Europe and from Asia, and we noticed that um, genetically there wasn't a lot of variation, and interestingly, this is borne out because morphologically, so uh, Anatomically, they look similar as well. Um, and this indicated to us that these species that we're finding in Australia are cosmopolitan. So that means they're, they're pretty well-traveled. <laughs> <laughs> species that we find on the south coast and, and, and other spots that we sampled in Australia that like to move around a bit. Um, and that's it, the contrast there would be they're not endemic to Australia. They're not just found in Australia. So the cosmopolitan species are good candidates for kind of being potential introduced species. They're the ones that are kind of moving around with, uh, you know, hull fouling on, on boats and kind of ship traffic and whatnot. So we tested that assumption in a, in a recent study and uh, with ecology and genetics, and we found pretty good evidence for three um, kind of ulva or green seaweed species. Uh, appear, they appear to be introduced to Australia. And you can see the implications for biosecurity and, and, you know, a lot of introduced species can, I'm not saying that these, 
species are can become invasive and kind of wreak havoc on the native ecosystem. So you want to know that if they're there and kind of monitor them. Yeah, and there's a lot of examples of introduced species causing havoc, so it's good to find out some of the background of it. Is this algae actually um, going to become invasive or is it causing any issues or is it just happily floating by? No, we're, at this point it's kind of early stages in the research um, and right now it doesn't, I mean, it, they haven't taken over, but um, you certainly kind of, uh, if you were around and I think it was 2009, the Beijing Olympics and these huge seaweed blooms that were in the media, they're just something that people kind of want to be aware of and, and watch. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. All right, well, that sounds um, really interesting and looking, I mean, I'm kind of impressed that looking at DNA can actually aid in, in conservation and that side of things. Yeah. Well, uh, there's whole journals now dedicated in conservation genetics, molecular ecology, that are dedicated to kind of infusing conservation with a genetic perspective. So it's, it's certainly um, a field that's here to stay and, and growing. Yeah. And would you say, um, I mean, this might be controversial, but would you say that the, the genetics can give you a bit more uh, solid science behind uh, a lot of... Uh, conservation work that may just be observation? I'm, I'm pretty biased. <laughs> <laughs> You're speaking to the converted here. <laughs> yeah, it's, kind of, it's giving you a gene's eye view. So it's a different, a different perspective. And um, yeah, I just, I'll just leave it at that and just say that it's a, it's a really important one. All right, yeah. I'll, I'll let you say incorporate all aspects of the science. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you, you, biology and reproduction and, and ocean, I mean, they're, you know, in the, in the marine realm, it's important to kind of have all, a lot of lines of evidence, but I certainly feel, I mean, um, yeah, I certainly feel that genetics is not maybe the most important, but it's, it's the one good thing about genetics, it's a very fast proxy. It's easy to gather a lot of comparative data very quickly from a tissue sample the size of the pinhead, you know, so it's it's quick. It's a fast proxy. And if you think about, imagine yourself in the middle of a rainforest and you're a scientist and uh, and you've got to do a biodiversity assessment. So how many species live in a, in a, a one hectare tract of rainforest? And you can hear the logging trucks coming. You know, it's <laughs> so it's um, it's just a really quick way to get a lot of data. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much for joining us today, Lisa. It's uh, fantastic to hear from you. Thank, thank you. I just want to one just last comment. Yeah. I just wanted to say how grateful I am for the initiative of the Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery Center in kind of bringing together a diverse group of scientists. They've been doing this for years now, um, this weekend event, and I just find that events like this are rare and they sh- and they shouldn't be because uh, they really they unite and inform a community. They help get science kind of out there to be chewed on by a wide range of people. Mm. Yeah, well, I guess that's a really important point is that this uh, Sea Connections Marine Science Forum that's happening isn't just for scientists. There's a whole lot of scientists speaking, but it's really for the, the community to come along, isn't it? That's right. And a lot of people find there's a gap, you know, between scientists in an ivory tower and, and kind of the rest <laughs> of the world. And, and so events like this go a long way to kind of diffusing that, you know, because, yeah. That's right. There's even a nice dinner where you can actually socialise with people and, and, and talk and that sort of thing. It's not all about the research. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And that's where I think a lot of the kind of learning both ways kind of really happens. Yeah. Yeah. De- definitely. Well, thanks again, Lisa. That's fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And that, bye. Bye.
And that's Dr. Lisa Kirkendale there from the uh, University of Wollongong, Shoalhaven Marine and Freshwater Centre. Now on the line, uh, who have we got with us now, Gillian? We've got um, Carol DeRussell. From, she's a PhD candidate at the University of Wollongong's Australian National Centre for Ocean Resources and Security. That's a big mouthful. Um, and she's going to be talking about high seas biodiversity conservation at the Marine Science Forum. Hi, Carol. Morning. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess the first question is, can you talk about exactly where the high seas are and the sort of biodiversity that you can find out there? the parts of the oceans that are found outside of uh, the national waters of countries. So basically the international waters, and they represent 64% of the oceans. And uh, we, f- uh, we find a, an awful lot of life out there. Uh, there's an incredible variety of species, and uh, you can find them in all depths, in all environments, both uh, plants, animal species, and they range from very small animals, uh, such as microbes, to very large uh, mammals, such as whales. So you're talking about sort of the no man's land, you know, where the pirates are and all that sort of area out there, where the whales will travel through and you get all sorts of biodiversity. So you're looking at just pelagic species or are you looking at the benthic species as well? Uh, sorry, I didn't understand the first part of your question, but I heard the second part about the pelagic and benthic species, is that correct? Yeah, are you, yeah. Look- are you looking at both of those species or just the pelagic? Oh. All right, so, so for the conference, I will be talking about high seas biodiversity in general, uh, so that will, of course, include um, all the different forms of life that thrive in the ocean, and that includes, of course, the bottom-dwelling species and the species found in the water column. But the, the, the focus of the talk will be more, uh, as I said, about uh, high seas biodiversity in general and how to conserve it. Yeah, and I mean, why are the high seas so important um, to, I mean, to humans and to, to the general environment? Yeah. Uh, well, they are very important because, as I said, they represent 64% of the oceans. Um, so that's a, an, an enormous part. And, uh, of course, when you look at the oceans, they provide us with, uh, you know, a, a large number of goods and services. And probably the most important one uh, for us as humans uh, are fisheries. They're uh, an important source of protein for most people. Um, many people depend on, on that activity for their livelihood. Uh, so this has a... This contributes um, to human food security and, and in some cases to poverty alleviation. Um, the other thing is also that the uh, oceans play an important role in the regulation of the Earth's climate. So through the connection between the oceans and the atmosphere, um, there's you know, a constant uh, exchange of heat and gases. And so uh, the oceans provide us with um, oxygen and also absorb uh, important gases such as um, carbon dioxide. So that's... Um, very important for us. And of course, they're, as I mentioned, um, uh, home to a major part of the world's biodiversity. And without this biodiversity, um, the oceans wouldn't be able to regulate all these, um, you know, all our planet as they do at the moment. So uh, conserving and managing biodiversity in the oceans is very important. Hi, Carol. It's Chris Fulton here. I was just wondering, uh, could you give us an example of a species that roams the high seas and some of the challenges we face with trying to understand and manage these kind of species. Have you got an example for us? Well, we have, yeah, we have all different kind of species. And for instance, um, let's look at the sea turtles. They um, travel from uh, the southern Pacific up to the northern Pacific, and they're really highly migratory species. Um, uh, 
yeah, they're faced with different threats. Um, that includes, um, for instance, when we look at fisheries, they can be a part of a you know bycatch. Um, they can get caught in nets. Um, they can also be caught by you know plastics um, that are found in the oceans. Um, so yeah, there are different type of threats that can you know affect them. And also, of course, if you look at um, uh, climate change in general now the, the warming of the oceans or you know the effects it has on on on, on the oceans this can also uh, change um, where they're going to feed uh, where they're going to go so it has an impact on on these species and of course because many other species depend on them it affects uh, ecosystems in general so it's a real international problem then because you, you i mean we're talking about a lot of cultural differences with how we perceive turtles isn't it i mean if we think about polynesia they they're an ingredient for soup, and and uh, on the Great Barrier Reef, they're they're something that a diver wants to see. So it's a big international problem. How do you see a governance of this kind of problem? Is that a job for the UN, or where do you think the responsibility really comes in for managing it? Yeah, yeah, it is a, an international uh, let's say problem um, because of the international waters. They have to be um, they have to be sorry international cooperation and coordination. Um, you know towards uh, the conservation and management of the high seas at all levels. Uh, so not only within the UN, having all the institutions uh, and states collaborate together to find solutions, but of course also at the regional and national levels um, where you know most of um, uh, measures um, agreed upon at international uh, levels are applied. Uh, and of course... Um, national and regional levels are probably also uh, more important because you have all the local peoples de- people depending directly on the ocean and that, they are the ones really directly affected by it so their you know opinions and, and, and how they um, how we can fix it in some ways um, is also important hmm. and I suppose the other difficult thing working on those high seas they're not nearby to where you're living or anything like that how do you study the, the high seas in the middle of the oceans yeah uh, it is very difficult, and to be honest, what we know about the high seas at the moment is very minimal, um, because as you say, they're, they're remote. Uh, it's really hard to access. It costs also a lot of money, and you need um, a very good technology to access, you know, deep the deep seas and, and, and remote oceans. Um, so there are a few, you know, um, research expeditions um, that are being undertaken, and if I um, can point out the incredible work of the Census of Marine Life, uh, which is a, an international scientific collaboration program that took place between the years 2000 and 2010, and that was the first of its kind. So different scientists all over the world um, kind of got together and designed a, a research program to understand the marine environment and especially marine biodiversity better. So with the support, you know, with such a big program, they got support from, you know, different institutions and uh, carried out research in the coastal and uh, coastal areas and on the high seas. And that really um, shed, you know, a new light on that environment. So what we really need is more collaborative effort in you know in that sense because undertaking research at the local national level you know is good but doing it at the international level with more people uh, brings probably you know more in terms of, of what we get out of, of you know in terms of understanding mm. and i mean are things like um satellite imaging and that sort of stuff the the increasing technology there are they helping or is it still much better to actually be out there and, and working in the oceans and looking at it that way uh, so everything helps. Uh, 
uh, in my view, uh, because it's so hard to, to get access to, to the high seas and, and to understand every part of the ocean, any kind of technology that can bring us more knowledge is really valuable. And with uh, remote sensing data, you get a sense of uh, what is happening, especially you know physically with you know temperature, sea surface differences, and, and things like that. So that helps us to understand. Um, you know, how species live and, and, and how they are affected by, um, you know, our activities, for instance, or, or by, you know, marine currents in general. Um, so you can't just have a look at, you know, the species in the ocean and, and how they live. You have to take into account also the, the, the sorry, oceanographic data, physical data. So, of course, any technology really sheds, you know, light onto that environment. So it's really important. Mm. And uh, what protections are currently in place for the high seas? Yes, so at the moment, not much. Um, as, as I said, they represent 64% of the oceans, but less than 1% of the high seas benefit from conservation measures. So that's not much. Um, and basically what we have at the moment is um, eight marine protected areas. Uh, we have one in the Mediterranean Sea between France and Italy. We have one in the Southern Ocean, close to the Antarctic Peninsula, and a newly adopted uh, network of six marine protected areas in the northeast Atlantic, which is uh, close to the European continent. So only eight of them. And other than that, we have also temporary closure areas to bottom fishing. So that means that in some parts of, of the oceans or the high seas, especially in the northern Atlantic Ocean, um, you know, um, then, you know, people are not allowed to, to go bottom fishing. So that's very minimal. Mm. And, I mean, you've talked a lot about um, more uh, cooperation between different countries, but are there any other recommendations you, you feel could be developed to help protect this important ecosystem? Sure. Yeah, what, uh, what many people think is important at the moment um, is the identification of important marine areas uh, that require protection. Because, uh, of course, as I pointed out, we have less than 1% um, of the high seas, you know, covered by some conservation measures. So the idea is to um, find more places where these conservation measures could be applied. Um, so scientists are working on criteria that um, enable to identify these areas. Uh, and currently the, the process is ongoing and uh, there is an important um, conference um, in September, if I'm not mistaken, this year, um, under the Convention on Biological Diversity, with um, where, sorry, where these um, identified uh, important marine areas will be presented, and then, of course, countries will have to see what they think about it and, and how we're going to get forward. So, just now, at the moment, the, the scientific, you know, activity of trying to find these areas and trying to, you know, promote them in some ways politicians for countries uh, is very important and then we need to see what what we can do with it and what kind of protection measures we can apply hmm. fantastic all right well thanks very much for joining us today carol and um talking about the the high seas and that sort of thing and i'm sure um many people are looking forward to your talk at the marine science forum coming up next weekend thank you very much thank you for having me thanks carol and that was Carol Drussell there, from uh, a PhD candidate from the University of Wollongong uh, at Australia's National Centre for Ocean Resources and Security.
Now, all the guests we've had today talking to us um, are speaking at the Marine Science Forum, which is happening down uh, at Eden very soon, Jill. Do you want to tell us a bit more about the Marine Science Forum? So the Marine Science Forum, this is its fourth year that it's been running, and it's um, essentially a group of Australia's respected marine scientists, and they're all coming down to talk on the theme of sea connections. So we've got scientists from Batemans Marine Park Manager, and we've got Dr Chris Fulton, Carol DeRussell, Lisa Kirkendale that we spoke to earlier, um, Dr Monina Rowan, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, from the University of New South Wales, and Dr Melinda Coleman, who is another research scientist from Batemans Marine Park. And they're all going to be talking on a number of marine science um, topics over the weekend of March 24 to 25, and down, that's down at the Eden Marine High School. So we're involving, trying to get the students to come along as well, so they're actually given free registration to hopefully get them inspired to become marine scientists. And the Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery Centre, where I work, is running the Marine Science Forum. And if you are interested in coming along, it's going to be a great weekend. There's more information on the website at www.sapphirecoastdiscovery.com.au. There's the registration form and the program, and it's going to be a really fun weekend and hopefully get some snorkelling in as well. Oh, fantastic. And, yeah, I mean, it's only $30 per person per day, which really isn't that much and a whole lot going on down there. So definitely worth checking out. Look, I mean, it sounds just a nice idea to go for a weekend on the coast, to be honest. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> as long as the rain holds off. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, that's fantastic. So that website, again, is uh, sapphirecoastdiscovery.com.au and you can find more details about the forum on there. Uh, Fuzzy Logic's also on the web too. You can check out our Facebook page and like us there. And I might even post that link on the Facebook page uh, so all our listeners can follow that. Um, And if you did enjoy today's show, don't forget to download our podcast. Just type in Fuzzy Logic into iTunes or you can head to fuzzylogic on 2xx.podbean.com for more there. Uh, But thanks very much for joining us today, Jill. Thanks for having us, Broderick. No worries, going on a deep sea dive together. And uh, thanks for joining us too, Chris. Oh, you're very welcome. It's good to be here. Yeah, and I hope you too have a lovely weekend uh, down at Eden next weekend and uh, enjoy the hopefully nice weather and a snorkel or two and uh, some fantastic talks on the marine environment. Well, thanks very much, listeners, for joining us again for another episode of uh, Fuzzy Logic. We'll be back next week, uh, same time, same place, talking a bit of maths next week. Uh, So come along for something a bit different there. 